another episode of Square and Compass podcast with Worshipful Brother Edgar Barron from, uh, well, in New York now, but uh, Worshipful Master of Cape Town Lodge in South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, uh, Worshipful Brother Adamson. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Looking so, forward to it. There's all sorts of, of things uh, I want to talk to you about, but I want to start with how I came to uh, contact you and, and meet you. Is through actually is through my father. He is a Mason in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and the Grand Lodge of Manitoba, of which he's a member, takes part in the International Masonic Town Halls, which you know you facilitate and organize. And he sent me the information on them. And I've been lucky enough to attend, uh, I believe, two or three of them now, along with so many educational opportunities. Uh, what I love about them is they're bringing Masons from all over the world together in a, a virtual setting. When did the uh, International Masonic Town Halls start? And can you tell us a little bit about the impetus behind them? Yeah, I, I think you might actually like the impetus behind it. Um, so... Um... I'm South African, as you've uh, pretty much pointed out, uh, and it's Lodge Cape Town, um, and um, came here um, in uh, in December. My wife's a U.S. citizen. Uh, came here in December and uh, was heading back in, I think, March, um, and uh, I remember we were still on our way to uh, de Blasio's uh, house for some event when that was canceled. Uh, some function we were supposed to attend at the United Nations was also canceled before we knew it. Uh, the borders worldwide were closed and I, I couldn't go anywhere. Um, so being here in, in the United States, um, obviously the challenge with regards to, to Lodge and, and as a Mason, you know, we are, uh, we, we appreciate um, the, the fraternity. Uh, we appreciate certainly the interaction that we have at Lodge. And, and that became a challenge in terms of obviously uh, having that and, and going to Lodge in the United States also became a challenge because of lockdowns. Uh, particularly New York was very, very hard hit. Um, and I got to a point where I thought of myself that I'm certainly missing Lodge, and I'm sure there must be a lot of other people, a lot of other brethren that are are missing it as well. And so I, I would, I, I'm stopping short of saying that it was out of sheer boredom, <laughs> but it's it was more out of, uh, out of missing that interaction that we have in Lodge um, that I then uh, decided to start the, uh, the International Masonic Town Hall. Um, I uh, have been all over the world. I've, uh, I've traveled to a, a number of countries, uh, particularly India and, and Turkey. And the United States is very strong in terms of Freemasonry, so that re those relationships um, are certainly there. Um, I think the, my wife and I, the last um, uh, major event that we had for Freemasonry was in, in, in Istanbul. And certainly built a lot of uh, a lot of relationships there as well. And I had all this data and all these relationships, and reached out and said, "I actually want to start this international Masonic Town Hall." And here we are. Uh, November twenty first will be the eighth edition. Uh, it's something we do once a month. I get the content predominantly from um, from people like yourself that's interested in certain topics that we want to discuss. Because the funny thing is, I realized I've traveled a lot, but a lot of Masons never do. And so they don't really realize the true benefit of Freemasonry until you actually get out of your own country and interact with other Masons and, and, and see how they actually do things differently, the nuances, et cetera. And so I wanted to, to bring that experience across to brethren all over the world. 
And uh, hopefully once COVID is behind us, whenever that may be, uh, hopefully some brethren will be able to get on an airplane and, uh, and fly to some of those destinations and, and interact with some of the brethren that they've met on the uh, International Masonic Town Hall. I, I would agree completely. You know, the emphasis on, I like how you emphasize the idea of travel. I think so many Masons, even just within their own area, their own uh, city. Here in Windsor, for example, at our Masonic Temple, we have seven lodges that meet at this one temple. So many Masons will only come out to their own lodge meeting. They won't even attend, you know, another lodge meeting in the same temple. Right. The, the idea of that travel and visitation and you taking the taking the step to encourage that virtually, since we can't do it in person, I think was really, is a very cool thing. And I've really enjoyed my time at the, the town halls. Do you, do you think that this is something though that will continue post COVID-19, not only your town halls, but the, the increased use of virtual events for education and meetings and things of that nature? Absolutely. Um, I think we've dealt with that question I think a few times in the International Masonic Town Hall as well. Um, the, the idea or the, um, the need is definitely there to continue with the interaction. Uh, one, for the educational purpose, just to understand how uh, others deal with similar challenges. Um, but uh, secondly, there is this challenge um, during COVID, and I don't know about your lodge, but most lodges have a number of senior brethren in them. I, I will I hope we'll get back to this point, but I'm confident that Freemason will get its fair share of, uh, of new interest uh, because of the uh, depressive um, environment that the world finds itself in at the moment. Uh, I personally think it's one of the coolest um, organizations to be a, a member of. But be that as it may, um, the, the view that I've received back from a lot of the grandmasters and a lot of the... Um, the chains uh, within Grand Lodges is that they're definitely interested in um, continuing the, the digital um, real estate, as it's been coined by some people. Um, and so even uh, going forward, we might see a bit of a hybrid. Um, it really just depends on whether those Grand Lodges or Lodges invest in that kind of technology where the parts that we cannot show online obviously will remain where it is, but the parts that you can do, like Open Lodge, etc., um, the senior brethren within those jurisdictions themselves will not be coming to lodge immediately because there's still a concern about um, about COVID, and they'd certainly like to look in and participate virtually without is concerned. And so that's the conversations being had at the moment. Um, and so from where I stand, uh, there does seem to be um, a, a need, and uh, I think also a desire to uh, to continue this process. Yeah. And from a practical aspect. One thing that changed my thinking on this, because I was uh, I was concerned, and, and a lot of brethren, I know, for example, uh, here in Windsor, are concerned about the potential for people, uh, Masons, to get so used to online meetings that they start to forego in person uh, when that returns. Uh, but the what I found so valuable about virtual meeting is it allows... It allows education and connection with brethren. It's just going to be very challenging to, to do any other way, even without travel restrictions. The International Masonic Town Hall, for example, I mean, it would take me 
a lot of years and a lot of money to visit each of those lodges that take part in it in person. Uh, and if you're working, you know, whatever it is, you might not have the time to do those things. So to have an opportunity to connect with brethren from, you know, India, New York, South Africa, Manitoba, um, Arizona, all the different places that, that are on there. I think that just opens up a whole level of opportunity that we've never seen before. We might have had the potential for it before, but this has really forced us to kind of examine how we can use that. Have you been, what, what type of feedback have you been getting? This, the same type of feedback for me, people excited about it, looking forward to the next one? Oh, absolutely. Um, I've already set the calendar all the way to, uh, to end of January for the, the New Year's edition. Uh, the only challenge is you very well put it that, you know, people will be getting back to work at some point. And so um, frequency might become an, an issue and, and, and we'd have to look at that. Uh, but beyond that, um, I, I do not agree that brethren, in a sense, will forego uh, meeting in person to, um, to the, the online meetings. The challenge with the online meetings is that um, it's not a tiled meeting. You know, uh, no one anywhere in the world uh, is doing online tiled meetings as per se. Yes, we all, you know, wear our, um, our chain, for example, just to show who we are. But uh, beyond that, the actual tenets of uh, Freemasonry, those basic things, signed written word, those kind of things cannot be, be shown online. And it's not because there's a secret about it. Um, to be very clear, it's just I, for one, would never want to spoil that experience for a, a candidate. It's something that only happens to you once. And um, I, don't think, I don't think anybody should spoil that. They didn't spoil it for me, and I certainly won't spoil it for the next person. Um, so because that cannot happen um, online, it can only happen in person, I don't think that we'd actually lose out on, on those in-person uh, workings. I think as soon as we're back, um, we might see an increase in, in interest, an increase in brethren uh, attending. Um, and certainly from that particular point, I think um, there will always be these two parallels that we'll be, be having going forward. I, as I said at the start, uh, I would, I've enjoyed my time with the International Masonic Town Halls and I look forward to the next, the next batch. If, uh, if any brethren or even Grand Lodges that, that are watching this are interested in taking part, how would they go about doing so? And uh, I can throw any content information in the description for this video as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, I generally send out the the dates um, at least a minimum two weeks before we actually have the actual town hall. Um, but in this case, I can already tell you that the town hall for November will be on November 21st. Um, the town hall in December will be December 19th for obvious reasons. You know, we've got the holidays coming up. And then uh, the town hall in January will be January 30th. And uh, I think in the last town hall and the one before that, um, you would have heard that we were talking about um, social interaction uh, worldwide. And we were particularly talking about cricket. Um, and uh, so, so we're, we're fairly advanced in terms of that social interaction and that will be open. So even if people are non-Masons, they're very welcome to, uh, to view it and participate. Um, so we, we want to certainly broaden the experience as much as what we can. It's just the town halls themselves are for Masons only. But in that particular instance, as soon as you get the invitation, you are more than welcome to send it anywhere you want in the world. And um, 
as long as people are SVP and I'm aware that they are attending, happy to have them, happy to let them in. Um, the only challenge, of course, is, is time. So when we add a Grand Lodge, for example, to um, be a responder to, to the topics, then obviously we drag it out. And as much as what I've been trying to run them uh, for one hour, the magic, the magic time slot seems to be two hours. We just can't seem to get away from that. Sounds like a, well, I, you're a worshipful master. You know how it goes. It, yeah. <laughs> it, it never goes, uh, you can never plan for time as much as you'd like. I, True uh, story, but but what we try and do is, uh, you know, when, when Freemason tries to make uh, good men better, um, I'd like to think that every worshipful master, every assistant provincial or provincial or grandmaster is actually the CEO of, uh, of a nonprofit organization. And so that gets run again, uh, that gets run along certain rules. And so you do try and, and manage your time in large. So the ceremonial working, that is well controlled. What you don't have control over is the banquet that comes after that can go on for hours and hours, depending on the occasion. It can, I, we've, all, we've all been there. Every worshipful master uh, knows True. that experience. Yeah. I, uh, what, moving past the uh, the virtual meetings for for a little while uh, i'd love to learn more about your, maybe my favorite aspect of freemasonry uh, is the ability to meet people you wouldn't otherwise meet and then get to learn a, a little bit about their story masonic and otherwise and the thing i've loved about this podcast is i'm able to expand that idea to people who, uh, they, don't, they don't always have to be Masons, but they might have interests that are related to Freemasonry. So, you know, I've had architects and heritage uh, developers on to discuss heritage buildings and maintaining those. But in your case, uh, you are, as, as we said, a worshipful master from uh, your lodge at Cape Town Lodge in South Africa. I'd love to learn more about your Masonic story, how you got involved in Freemasonry where you first learned about it and your experiences in South Africa, which I understand is behind you right now, Cape Town. Right, I'm gonna to have to pull a Bill Sardone on you and ask how much time we have to have that conversation. Um, just, so, uh, just so that everybody knows, uh, it's a most worship whether uh, William Sardone, Bill Sardone is the Grand Master in New York. Uh, and I only know that because of your town halls. Right, right, right. Um, so uh, most worshipful uh, William Sedone's fantastic grandmaster. He's uh, very forward thinking and absolutely love his, uh, his participation as well. Um, I just want to touch on the architects and the non-Masons quickly and, and mention India to you. Uh, what I found very interesting about India is that um, whereas around the world, our lodges are predominantly mixed because that's just the idea. You want to meet with people from all walks of life uh, in India, funny enough, they have them um, uh, almost focus on, on sectors. So when I was there, the one lodge that I was in happened to be the uh, Irish Friendship Lodge in New Delhi. And um, every single person that was a member of that lodge was part of the judiciary. They were either um, a solicitor, uh, an attorney, or they were a judge sitting or magistrate sitting on a bench, which is quite interesting. I didn't know that until we got to uh, to the banquet, but that was the case. Um, and so architects and everything else will be in their own particular lodges. That's interesting. Just because I'm thinking to the history of 
Freemasonry in Windsor. I'm, I'm wondering if it might be equivalent in, in all of Ontario, but here in Windsor, a lot of our lodges started very similar in that they were primarily grouped based on, on occupation. We had, for example, a Great Western Lodge, which is the oldest lodge, was named after the Great Western Rail Line. And pretty much all the people involved were, you know, involved with the railroad or uh, rail workers. We had a policeman's lodge. We had a lot of, um, it, now that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, There's much more of a mix, but originally it seems like historically it was very common for lodges to form based on professions primarily. Uh, right. And so that, that's interesting. Yeah. So coming back to your original question about um, Cape Town and, and South Africa in particular, we had a similar format there. So um, the lodges were, uh, I'll give you a simple example. One was called Mutual Lodge, and that was named after uh, a particular uh, corporation, which was in insurance. So it was the, uh, the Mutual Society and um, the members of that lodge all came from there. And there were 60 to 100 members in the lodge at a, at a particular point in time. Um, so very similar format, but you're correct. Um, certainly the mix has changed and we certainly seem to have a very diverse group of people in any particular lodge at this particular point in time, I think anywhere else in, in the world. Um, to focus on my lodge in particular, um, Lodge Cape Town, funny enough, um, I'm the 11th Worshipful Master. Uh, of that lodge and, and certainly being uh, Worshipful Master for three consecutive years. And of course, because of COVID, I mentioned earlier, um, will probably now be a fourth year and, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that as we go along. Um, but uh, that lodge came about uh, as an amalgamation by two other lodges, uh, which were there before. Um, St. James certainly being the first one and Cobb Stock being the other, which is just Dutch for, uh, for Cape Town. Um, and of course, the, we're, we're one of a number of lodges that um, meet um, at uh, a Temple de Geruha, which is the, uh, probably the main building or the jewel in the crown, uh, as far as I'm concerned, for the Grand Lodge of South Africa. Um, the building itself was uh, completed in the late 1800s, I think uh, around eight, uh, 1886 or thereabout. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Freemasonry came to South Africa via the uh, Grand East of the Netherlands. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with uh, that structure, but um, the Cape was initially Dutch. And um, in 1772, uh, the very first lodge, which is now our number one lodge, Lodge de Geruwup, uh, or the Lodge of Good Hope, uh, was established um, consecrated in 1772 in, in the month of April. Um, and then beyond that, um, you know, we've got four jurisdictions and I'll, I'll get to that operating within South Africa, I'll get to that in a second. But beyond that, the Grand Lodge of South Africa itself, if you go to our website, it's just www.grandlodge.co.za uh, for South Africa. Um, that was established in 1961, and uh, we've been going strong ever since. So the three additional constitutions that's um, working harmoniously with us uh, within the country and probably has a broader reach within sub-Saharan Africa and the continent would be the Grand Lodge of England, 
the Grand Lodge of Ireland and the Grand Lodge of Scotland. And, and we work very well together uh, across the board when it comes to charity or anything else. Um, we're always supporting each other where that is concerned. Tell me about what's behind you. Not yeah, literally so, behind you, but I think it's really, it's a, you explain <laughs> the, virtual background. you, you know, some magic, your, uh, your virtual background. Right, right. So uh, the structure behind me uh, is generally called uh, Table Mountain, which is a translation from Dutch. Uh, but I've just got to go a little bit back a little bit further. Um, obviously, it was their way before the Dutch got there in, uh, in 1652. Um, and the locals, the Khoisan has a special name for it. It's actually Urikwachel. And Urikwachel translated means the mountain in the sea. So immediately next to it, um, to my left or, or the left of the picture itself, um, on, on the right-hand side, you'll see that there's a little bit of sea there. That is actually the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and the smaller mountain there, uh, if you have a proper view of it, it looks like it's got, it looks like a lion that's actually resting. So it's got a head and the body of a lion, and that's actually called lion's head. Uh, on the on the left side is uh, what we generally call Devil Speak, and there's a story behind that. And then the center part of the the mountain is obviously as flat as a table. So when the Dutch arrived. They couldn't pronounce Uri Kochel to begin with, and they decided to call it Tafelberg. And Tafel is Dutch. We translate that to, uh, to English. Tafelberg becomes Table Mountain. Uh, Devil Speak itself is, um, is a legend about uh, uh, the, the devil meeting uh, a Dutchman and having a smoking competition. So during fall and winter, you'll see that the table, the top part of the mountain is actually covered in a white cloud. So you've got a tablecloth over it, which just added to the whole idea of it being a table mountain. Um, and then of course the, um, the uh, not the auditorium, but the, the, the central part there is actually the, the, the basin is, is where the table mountain itself is situated. And then it obviously spreads out in, in two directions, but effectively it's right at the Southern tip of, of Africa and your Indian and, 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 uh, and Atlantic oceans kind of meet there, even though that's about another two hours drive to, uh, to the, the east, but those two oceans meet there. The, the, the story about the devil and the Dutchman having the smoking competition, I'm just thinking to myself, as you said that, it's, I wonder where, if there's some type of, why it is that that idea, you know, the, the competition between the devil and it seems to come up in a lot of different cultures. The actual competition itself changes, you know, smoking in, in South Africa, whereas it's a, you know, in the American South, it's playing a fiddle. Right. Uh, I've heard, I've heard other stories about, if not the devil, some type of demonic entity and, and having a bet and winning the bet. That's an interesting, this, I, that's the cool thing about these is you always hear stuff and it makes you think, I wonder why it is that that is such a common theme in so many myths, the idea of, of bets and, and, you know, demonic setting up a bet, something like that with a demon or a devil and, you know, inevitably winning, usually the, the good guy wins, but it's a really cool that's an interesting. It's funny how these things are so consistent throughout all cultures. Uh, th that's true. Uh, I, again, it's just a legend, but you're right. Uh, whether you go to 
places in Europe, whether you go to Asia, doesn't South America, doesn't matter where you go, there's always some form of legend, um, and they're always very similar across the board. Do you think that that helps to explain also the spread of Freemasonry uh, across the globe? This tendency, in the, in the sense that it seems that there's certain common, you know, wherever, whether it be South Africa, North America, India, there seems to be certain just common people are have common desires, desire for fraternity, for gathering, for for friendship and brotherhood, that makes it so universal. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I, I think the universality of, uh, of Freemasonry is what makes it very attractive on the one hand. Um, on the other hand, I think it's also, uh, you know, depending on whether you want quantity or quality, and I, I generally prefer quality over quantity, um, I think that the kind of person that is obviously attracted to Freemasonry is attracted to, to history, uh, foundations, um, I think Freemasonry offers that, but I think beyond that, it also offers you um, that pomp and fair ceremony, uh, which generally, if you go back to feudal times, was not available to those who were lowborn, uh, only those who were highborn, like kings and, and, and the royal line would obviously uh, enjoy that. But I think Freemasonry certainly offers that ceremonial part, uh, which is something that for me is is phenomenal. You know, uh, the question is often asked about, okay, if you want to be involved in charity, why don't you just go join Lions or some of the, the other organizations that's out there? And one can, but certainly if you're interested in, in the ceremonial side of things, um, that you will probably, in my opinion, uh, only find in, in Freemason, which really makes it exciting for me. Is that what initially attracted you to Freemasonry was the ceremonial quality based on what you had heard or was there something else that initially attracted you to Freemasonry? Yeah, um, I was at a very interesting point in my life uh, where Freemason, where, where, well, where my life was concerned. And I think I had at the time researched Freemasonry for about uh, 10 years uh, before I actually just made a decision, decided to, to go through with it. Um, so I had a fairly positive perspective of Freemasonry, but for me, it was really about the fraternity at, uh, at that particular juncture in my life. I wanted to be around like-minded people um, who wanted to make a difference in the community, never mind the world. Um, and I, I got to that point where I actually just took the step. Um, and even though I, I still have my doubts because you know I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a Lewis, um, I'm first generation, uh, first generation Freemason, and um, there was no family history where Freemasonry was concerned, and it was just a matter of, of trust um, in terms of uh, what the organization had to offer. And I'm not disappointed; I'm still here. It's something that I enjoy. Um, but that fraternity is uh, is what attracted me to it. The pomp and fair, uh, the ceremonial part, was just that was the icing on the cake. It's something I really, really enjoy. And uh, it's quite unique. Um, and from every, I'm, I'm also a 28 degree Scottish Rite, by the way. So having gone through those other degrees, um, really, really enjoyed every single one of those degrees. And, uh, and the ceremonial part for me uh, was, uh, was paramount. Do you, when it comes to the, the ceremonial aspect 
of, of Freemasonry. How do you see that moving forward if, uh, if this, this current, you know, every, every, I know country and every jurisdiction has different rules regarding meeting and not meeting right now during COVID. But if this goes on for a significant period of time, I know I've talked to some virtual masters who are saying, you know, be, even before, once they're allowed to meet in person, they may hold off and have, you know, a series of practices to get the ritual back up to speed. Because even practicing by yourself, I find it's always good to practice by yourself and have, have your book, but unless you're practicing with other people, there's so many things about the cadence and the rhythm and the call and answer that you don't always get just by yourself. So do you see a period of time where, because obviously we don't want to be practicing online, at least I wouldn't want to, I'd be too concerned about security risks. Right. Do you see, you know, do you see uh, some lead up to getting back to ritual or do you think it's best to just jump right in and, you know, mistakes will be made, but just get, get going as soon as we can with the ritual work. Absolutely. Um, look, you know that ritual is never word perfect. There are very few brethren who can actually do that. And normally we give them a standing ovation uh, when that happens. Uh, you know, most brethren have other skills. Not everyone's uh, a ritualist. Um, so I do think that uh, once we back up and running, uh, people will make mistakes. Uh, some people will have to refer back to the book um, until we get to a point where we're comfortable again um, with the ritual as it stands. I agree with you. I don't think that anyone is going to um, do anything online with regards to, to ritual work itself. I do see that open lodges um, will, will certainly be, be online. I do see that there's potential for a hybrid where uh, those parts of the ritual that we don't generally want online will not be shown. But once that part has been, it's passed, we will probably focus the rest of the ceremony that is open that you can certainly show. And, and I think Manitoba was uh, a good example of that where the installation of, um, of the new uh, Grandmaster was actually done on, online, which was great. So it was, uh, it was just the parts that could be shown that was actually done. And so I think going forward, we're going we're gonna to see that because it really, as you started out saying, is uh, an issue of continuing the fraternity in a sense where we want to continue being a part of each other's journey. Uh, Masonically, we already know what goes on in the ritual, but it's that, that back-end bit where you, uh, you want to sit in on lodge, um, you certainly want to be able to engage uh, and certainly continue the conversation afterwards. So I think we're going to get very creative um, on the parts that we cannot uh, show. That's going to remain the same, but we're going to get creative in terms of uh, what we can actually do online going forward. The, the being creative is something I think is really worth discussing. I'm, I'm a big advocate for for creativity, I think sometimes, uh, to speak from, from my own personal experience, I've been a Mason for, oh my gosh, since 2000, I can't do math, since 2007, so 13, 13 years. You know, so not, not that long, but long enough that I find myself sometimes getting stuck in a, a rut, especially once you're in the you know, eighth, ninth year, you start to get into a habit and pattern of things 
and you don't always see opportunities for creative or new ideas unless you're constantly looking for them. That can be one of the best things about traveling or in this case, you know, virtually meeting brethren from other jurisdictions is to see what they're doing uh, that might be creative that you could apply to your own lodge or to your own Masonic activities. In your, your travels, whether it be meeting with brethren virtually or physically uh, traveling to other countries and, and other grand lodges, what are some of the things that have struck you as a traveler when visiting other lodges, some things that you've seen that you've been able to incorporate in your own Masonic journey? It depends on what you mean by incorporating in my own Masonic journey, because there, you know, the rule generally is that um, we have slight nuances uh, with regards to how things are done. Um, generally, the the um, the ritual is very similar, and I'll give you a very basic example of that. I was sitting in a lodge in uh, in Istanbul, and I don't speak a word of Turkish, but they were doing a working in the second degree, and I could follow, even though I couldn't understand a word they were saying. I knew what they were saying, and I knew exactly what was happening, and that was quite unique for me. And I think if anybody would go to lodge in Istanbul, they would find exactly that that same experience. It's it's not the language, it's the journey, and uh, it's it's identical, right? Um, so in the United States, for example, you know that they wear the top hat, um, there's the flag ceremony, et cetera, et cetera. Not, not all lodges or, or jurisdictions do that. Um, I know that South Africa is looking at bringing the flag back into, um, into the temple, uh, but certainly the top hat is not going to make it into the temple, I don't think. But um, uh, in terms of India, for example, they're, they're very different in, in terms of, uh, when I say different, let me be coy, they're quite relaxed in terms of the way that they do things some, sometimes. And so the Irish were typical Irish, which is great. We, we all know what they like. Um, and I found that very interesting. It's, uh, it was very different for me to see their interaction with each other. Um, and yet afterwards, the... the, um, the uh, having dinner together was, was the same as it would be anywhere else. And it was, was quite interesting. So um, if anybody would get the opportunity to travel, they'd actually find that there are very, very small differences in terms of how ritual work's actually done, uh, because effectively we all kind of filter back to, to our origin, which I would still like to think is usually uh, for the moment. So uh, lots of similarities around the world. And, and that kind of adds to the idea that when you are in lodge anywhere in the world, we all form but one lodge. You know, we're all brethren. There's, there's very little differences where that is concerned. And that's, that's the nice thing about it. You know, yes, brethren will come and pick you up at the airport and take you around and make sure that you're safe and you get to lodge and all that. But once you're in lodge, there's very little difference except for a few nuances and maybe language that's different. But other than that, it's like you're in your mother lodge. It's, it's exactly the same. The, the language barrier is something, I don't think I've talked to anybody about this before. You know, one, one suggestion I always make to, to new brethren, to, to the brand new guys is learn how to set up a lodge room. I don't know if you experienced this yourself, but learn, learn where, you know, the wands go, which apron goes with which chair for which officer. 
because, and this is something I found in my Masonic travels, I don't know if you found the same thing, is that if you're uh, visiting a lodge where you don't speak the language, uh, they obviously can't test you as they would normally. So they will have you set up the lodge room or at least parts of it to make sure you know kind of that's how they, they examine. I mean, I've seen that myself. I don't know if you've seen anything similar, but that's always one to just have for brand new people is learn how to set up a lodge room and right. where each officer sits and where the wands go and things like that. Right. Um, we, we both know that there's a particular office in the lodge that's responsible for that. We're not going to mention the, the, the particular office, but somebody is normally allocated to, to do that. Um, and yes, you know, if brethren are keen to set up the lodge, certainly um, they have the opportunity to do that. We, we normally have a preceptor that is open and available to anybody. It's normally a senior brother that is happy to take a call or meet in person and, and run you through the lodge, et cetera. Uh, but let me just talk about the, the lodge room, for example, uh, for, for a minute. Generally, um, all the lodge rooms around the world are very similar. Um, and they're all kind of based on, um, on the English uh, lodge room in a sense where it's square. And um, we have a very unique uh, situation with Temple de Khurwup, where we've got two temples um, in the, in the um, building. The one is square, the other one is oblong, which is, uh, and, and it's um, the original design of King Solomon's temple. So um, I think some people find it very uh, interesting uh, because it's not your normal square lodge. And um, a lot of the um, initial um, similar, well, similarities, a lot of the initial attributes of King Solomon's temple is actually perfectly represented in the Khuruwip temple. And um, there's a couple of uh, venues within the temple itself that you wouldn't find uh, anywhere else, uh, if I could put it that way. And, and some of it is related to the Scottish Rite as well. But Beautiful temple and a lot of the workings that we would do, um, it is easier to have a reference to the ritual when you're in a physical structure that represents the scenery or, or the environment that that takes place in very well. And the Khuruwa temple is such a location. It's a very special building. I, I don't know when, hopefully this will once this resolves and I have the chance, but I would love to, to visit. I haven't had the chance to visit many Masonic temples outside of North America, visited several in, in the States, several in Canada and a few in Europe and England particularly, but I'd love to visit more. And the way you discuss, uh, talk about, it, I'd love to visit I, any lodge in South Africa. I've never been there. Uh, my dad was there once I told you the story, tried yeah. to, tried to steal a, a glass from a pub and, and was told he shouldn't you, do that. You're going to have to edit that part out. Dude, that's amazing. <laughs> he, he wasn't at the time. He was a, oh, okay. All right. <laughs> he, was a, he was a young man on a, uh, on a cruise ship. And uh, as, as the story goes, apparently he, uh, he is, his cruise ship was docked in South Africa and he decided to go have a beer. He's from England. So, you know, a good Englishman having a, a beer and, Pint, <laughs> right? A, a pint, yes. And I guess he liked the uh, he liked the glass it was served in, so he tried to sneak out with it. And a uh, the security or the bouncer at the at the bar 
suggested it would not be a good idea for him to proceed with that plan. So he told me he looked, took took one quick look at the situation and gave the the glass back. But that I I never asked him. But based on what we we're talking before this started, would that probably have been Cape Town? You you said that's where most cruise ships were docking during. Yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, locations for docking, there's really only two locations um, that you could dock a cruise ship in. Um, the one would be Cape Town. The other one would be Durban. Um, so Cape Town is obviously uh, close to the southernmost point of the African continent, and it's in the Atlantic, whereas Durban is in the uh, Indian Ocean, um, a deep sea port, and that's the only real two locations where you can dock. You're talking about the diversity of South Africa, the genetic diversity of it. I thought that was a really cool really interesting fact if you could share that with the uh with the audience because I thought that was interesting I never would have guessed it was so because it seems so far out of the way for for cruise ships and things to travel but you're talking about um why why that was happening and also kind of some of the the results of it I thought it was a really interesting topic yeah so what I started out saying to you uh before we came online was that um, the, the saying goes that if the Cold War ever heated up and there was nothing left in the North, that the genetic profile of the demographic in Cape Town alone, just Cape Town, um, would have repopulated the planet within three generations the way that it is, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of the gene pool, because everyone has been past the Cape for hundreds of years. Um, the Silk Road was a very dangerous uh, road to be on. And so the only other way that Europe in particular could get to the East, uh, the Far East was uh, by sea. Um, the, the Swiss Canal wasn't always there. And at some point also, we were talking about your dad being here in the, being there in the seventies. The Swiss Canal, at some point there was conflict in the region. At some point they were busy uh, widening the Swiss Canal. So up until all of that was over and done with, all traffic uh, to the east came past the Cape. And, and as a result, you have all these uh, genetics that's just um, kind of come together. It's a, it's a, um, a, a pot of, uh, of world genes. It seems like such a cool place. You're, you're saying before, just talking to you about it, you're kind of not able to go back there right now. Uh, <laughs> to the current situation i guess are you missing it and also i am homesick like you will not believe <laughs> i can imagine it looks beautiful behind you i mean also from a masonic perspective as the worshipful master of your lodge are you uh still able to keep in contact with your your brethren absolutely um so the a lot of lodges and i don't think it's just south africa i mean i, I know of some countries, and I'm not going to mention any names, that because of their online policy, they're not, they're completely dark. And they've been dark since the the start of the pandemic, which is a bit of a tragedy. But um, where we're concerned, we were able to continue because uh, I think South Africa is very progressive. Um, and uh, they were happy with us uh, in a particular format, um, moving forward large meetings. So out of the lodges that we have uh, in Cape Town in particular, I think I probably, we've probably been the most regular 
um, that is concerned. And, and when I say regular, I mean in terms of sticking to our, our meeting nights, um, sticking to times, um, sticking to a sequence of events, even though we couldn't uh, do any of the ritual work itself. But, uh, you know, as a worshipful master, you've got to make sure that you have some quality content quality speakers and um, you know because of the relationships that I have around the world I've certainly been able to to do that you sat in on uh, on some of them you mentioned origins um, the uh, the the uh, Puramabi, uh legend um, that was uh, me having a conversation with the um, the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Lebanon uh, most worshipful Rafi Timonian um, and as we had a conversation, it just popped into my head. The reality of the matter is that the person that we know as Harma Biff, being a legend, that name doesn't appear anywhere. And, and it's actually a real person. And his name is mentioned in the Bible. And it's it's Hurumabi. And uh, I wanted to delve a little bit more into that. And, and most people don't even realize. But uh, Tyre is um, certainly in Phoenicia. And that is modern day Lebanon. So there's a real connection there to the legend or the, the legends and the story uh, that brings us into Freemasonry. It's not just a legend or myth. It, it actually really happened to, to a certain extent. There's a little bit of a twist, but uh, most of it is based on, on true events. How important is the educational component, do you think, to Freemasonry in general and uh, lodge meetings in uh, specifically because you seem to really emphasize that in the in the short time I've had the chance to you know be involved and, and contact you originally for the town halls and then the presentation thereafter you seem particularly to really emphasize the importance of Masonic education so what is it about that that you think it's important or why do you think it's important and are you emphasizing it more right now during uh, COVID, just as something to keep the brethren engaged, or has it always been an important part of your, your lodges? I, I, I think it's always been a, an important part, not just of our lodges, but I think of, of any Freemason's journey anywhere in the world. The, the, the issue is that when we are actually actively engaged in the lodge, what is it that we focus on all the time? Ritual work. We don't actually get to look a little bit deeper in terms of the, the history of Freemasonry, educational component of it, et cetera, or even the relationships that, that we build. We don't look into how uh, people are different from one, um, from one jurisdiction to the next because we're so focused on um, our own little journey, focused on the, the ritual itself and going from the one degree to the next. Uh, we don't actually go outside of that scope. If you want to do that, it's something that you obviously do in your own time. As to why I'm so uh, so focused on that, um, for, for me, you know, the, the saying goes, a Freemasonry takes good men and makes them better, or at least we try. And so uh, if we take that back a step, uh, coming from a country like South Africa, um, I strongly believe that every social ill that you can imagine um, it, it goes back to the individual. And, you know, if you want to have a strong family, you got to start with one person in particular. Freemasonry will obviously focus on the man 
and uh, the values that he should have, um, the structure, the order that he should have, and how that goes into into the family and and raising the Lewis um, uh, to to obviously carry on that um, uh, that history, and then from that particular point, one man, one family becomes a stronger community, and if you have strong value-based communities, you're going to have a country that is, um, that is uh, well-focused on, on values, you know, whatever that may be uh, to them. And, and for me, uh, you know, Freemasonry is probably one of those structures, one of very few structures that, um, you know, when it comes to the, the divisive parts in life, like politics and religion, we don't allow that. It's not that we don't think about it or talk about it. We just don't do that in lives. But it certainly gives you a different perspective on life when you're able to talk to somebody as another human being, as a person. It doesn't matter what the difference are between you, your brothers, and you're able to sit together, eat together, get to know each other's family, each other's values, each other's differences. And we're able to uh, peacefully engage each other where that is concerned. And for me, ultimately, those are the lessons that Freemasonry is trying to teach. And when we are practicing Freemasonry, we're so focused on the ritual that we forget what Freemasonry is really about, about charity and, uh, and about um, humanity, really, at the end of the day. And the, the ritual itself, I think you touched on a really, val really valuable point which is, yeah, I, I always describe it because I, I was involved with mentoring uh, for a few years, ritual work, is you can, you can mentor uh, a brother as he's moving through the degrees or for an office in terms of the, the words and having him memorize the particular words and the particular actions that go with them. And he may pick it up just via rote memorization, but it won't mean anything to him necessarily unless he understands some of the lessons or ideas or education that is behind those words. So whether it be, you know, the, the legend of Hiramabi or is any piece of, of Masonic education is going to impart the ritual, the words of the ritual with meaning and it will affect how he presents it. I always ask brethren, you know, when I would, mentor them after they would finish a particular section I'd always ask them to stop before they went on to the next section and tell me what they thought that section meant and so often you get the answer of I don't know right it's they, they know what the words are but they don't stop to think or internalize them and I think Masonic education as you describe it it helps give it gives those words life and meaning and it affects not only their ability to memorize them because if you if something matters to you you will remember it easier, but also when they're presenting it, they're not presenting it as though they're just speaking off a teleprompter going in their mind. They're actually presenting it in a way that has emotion and, and meaning for them. And of course, it doesn't mean every everybody will derive the same meaning from a, a piece of work or piece of ritual. It can often be a, an internal lesson, even with education. People will take different things from educational content and different things from a piece of ritual. But just they, like you talked about, it's it's not just about the words of the ritual. It's about understanding it through, such as you said, educational components. Yeah. So I, I think 
I think the second part of Freemasonry is as important as the first, which is charity. And charity is really Freemasonry in practice. So everything that we learn from the ritual, um, it, it's, it, it, it helps if you are in a building like the Hurup, and I'm sure there are others like them, um, that you have a, a practical experience um, so that you can actually reference what is being said in, in, in the ritual. So that's the first part when you have that. And this is why, why visiting other lodges, uh, as you started out saying, is so important. They may have a different uh, temple room um, or different lodge room. Um, and so you may be able to see it in a, a more practical manner. So uh, you'll remember uh, uh, one of the co-hosts, um, uh, Wishing Brother Roger Beatty. Um, I met him in Cape Town. And um, he, uh, he came one night because he was there with his wife in the city. And he came every other night that we had workings that week because he was so blown away by the differences for one, but secondly, by the temple. So um, you know that in, if we just talk from first degree to third degree, um, when you talk about um, uh, the, the different settings, we actually have a, 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 a two different temples for that particular working. And so it just absolutely blew his mind to see that degree being done in two separate temples in a practical manner. Um, and so I, I, if, you, if, you, if you run a ritual through a particular large room and people cannot always reference what it is that we're talking about, it does help when they're in a setting where it's actually easier to actually visually um, reference uh, those touch points. But then again, like I said, Freemasonry really comes into play when you one visit um, other jurisdictions around the world where you get to see how they are very different and get to feel that fraternity to begin with. And I, I'd like to think that the International Masonic Town Hall goes a long way in a, in a time that we are unable to travel in person. But then, of course, uh, charity, which is uh, a very strong component of Freemasonry, is Freemasonry in action because it doesn't matter who you are, uh, where you're from, you know, how much money you have or don't have, uh, affluent or whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, um, you see a need and as a human being to another human being, you're able to make a difference. And so charity for me is, is Freemasonry. What we are being taught or what we learn within the rituals themselves, charity is Freemasonry in action. Can you define charity? Because you, you mentioned that a few times and I agree. It, it's one of those things that is kind of so central to Freemasonry. But often, I think often people can have a very narrow view of, of charity or, or view it primarily from a monetary standpoint. I guess, how would you define define charity from it could be from a masonic perspective or just in general in life um to generalize i mean if there's a need it doesn't matter how small that need is um you know we don't differentiate so if somebody of a different religion is hungry where in some cases you might say look we're not associated so i'm not actually going to interact and assist but as a mason you don't see that, all you see is another human being. 
And so you're able to reach out and do something about them. And charity does not always uh, refer to monetary support. Uh, it, it's, it's time, you know, it's whether you go to an orphanage and, and read a book to a child that doesn't have a, a role model or whether you take food to a shelter, um, it doesn't have to cost a lot. It's just people appreciate the interaction and just the mere fact that other people care, um, strangers care. And I, I think that's one of the biggest problems in our society where uh, people get to a point where they completely or they feel completely useless. And it's up to us as human beings to, uh, to reach across the divide and, and actually assist and support uh, in whichever way we can. So whether it's your time, whether it is a practical item like a food parcel, um, you know, for us as a lodge, we, we are able to identify um, where those, those challenges are at any particular point in time. And I'd like to think that the man does not choose the moment. The moment chooses the man. Life throws things at us all the time. And Freemasons have the ability to always be mindful um, and be aware and see where those, those needs are and able to intercede and, and make a difference. It doesn't matter how small it is. I can speak for myself uh, and then I wonder if you would have any, any thoughts. And I know I, maybe it's, it's due to COVID or, you know, the, just the craziness of the world in 2020. I found myself more and more struggling with, with charity in the sense of uh, like from a, from a thoughts perspective. But one thing I think about charity sometimes is, is charitable in terms of your, your thoughts towards others. So not necessarily assuming uh, the worst of other people, you know, being charitable in your interpretation of their, their actions, even if it's an action you disagree with, or uh, you mentioned before, you know, there's could be political differences or religious differences or whatever it is, but being charitable in the sense of assuming the best of intentions towards the, the other side or towards other people, um, or you know, being charitable in terms of, of any judgments you may have towards people. I've been noticing though, just for myself and what I see online, on you know, social media, it seems like that is becoming less and less common. Maybe it's because of the, the stress. We tend to be, I, I think people are growing less, less charitable towards others in the perspective of assuming the best of intentions or assuming uh, even, even something where it seems as though if you if you look at somebody else and you view them as making a, a foolish decision or a dangerous decision, still being charitable and assuming that that decision is being made, you know, from a place of goodness or of, of uh, not not in a personal way or a negative way. So I guess. Uh, what do you think Freemasonry has to say on that subject and on the idea of like the International Masonic Town Hall seems to be this weird little place on online and virtual world that where that doesn't exist, where there actually is, you know, kindness and generosity and people getting along. And then you go to the other side and you go to Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, and there's much different uh is very different. So I guess, do you see Freemasonry as maybe being able to spread some of the, that idea of charity in the virtual world? 
which is so often filled with not so not so much of that. Absolutely, um, I, I hear that you call it the virtual world, but you know, charity I, I think predominantly happens in in the real world, and unless it is just uh, a scenario where people are able to associate, uh, laugh. Um, and not be judged. Um, certainly that part can be done uh, virtually. Um, I'm going to remind you of the third degree and I'm not gonna delve into that much further, uh, only to say that um, 2020, nobody saw it, well, very few people saw it coming, but nobody really saw it coming in the way that it did. But it's the recesses um, of society that's been disturbed. And, and we know that those recesses, given time, will, will balance themselves out. The equilibrium will come back into balance. Um, we know that we are all, um, none of us are equal. Uh, we all have different skills and different talents, but we're able to work together because of those differences to, uh, to have a more perfect uh, union, basically, where things are concerned. So um, in terms of, of that, I have a very simple example. I've got uh, one brother that's not even in my lodge. Um, and um, because of COVID's uh, social or economic impact more than anything else, uh, his neighbors certainly find themselves in a more difficult situation than what they normally would um, to, to basically feed themselves. And the brother in particular, uh, because of COVID, um, economically, uh, his business uh, certainly went, went uh, sideways or down. Um, and so he himself finds himself in a very difficult space right now. And I'm sure there's a lot of brothers around the world that are in that particular category. Um, but, you know, he makes the effort within his community to cook for the homeless and he feeds them on a regular basis. And, you know, he's in no better position than what they are, but as a Mason, um, to him, that's important. And I wrote him a note on, on our WhatsApp group and I said to him, brother, you inspire me. And he couldn't understand that because he's looking at me and he's looking at him. How can he possibly inspire me? But the point is that he is taking the very basics of Freemasonry and he's living it. He's implementing it. Um, you know, he could say, hey, it's just for me and my family. Uh, I've got to take care of that. But even the community around him, uh, he takes what he has and shares it with them. Uh, and so once the, the equilibrium um, comes back into balance, um, you know, it, it is almost inherent of Freemasonry. And this is why it's been around for such a long time. We do not judge the scenario. We just do. You know, and so when people have a need, we don't um, glorify ourselves in terms of what we do. We just go out there very often, not in the name of Freemasonry, but just as human beings and go make a difference, no matter how small that difference is. Even if we can just help one person, uh, that's important. And, and I see that in, um, in some of the brethren that I, I happen to be able to, to engage with. And you know what? Things may have been, well, it's probably still tough for, for all of us right now, but it will get better. It's, a question, it's not a question of, of if, it's a question of when. And so it doesn't mean that we need to be less humane uh, in terms of the way that we conduct ourselves. And so it's just a matter of time. Things will get back to, to some sense of normality. 
and uh, we'll be able to to move forward together. The identifying a need uh, aspect of charity, I, I like that because I think you hit the nail on the head. The need doesn't always have to be like we talked, right? People have can have a narrow view of charity in the sense of it's monetary, or it's it's providing some type of, of physical good. But you know the the need can be uh, emotional support if somebody is lonely, or the need can be a kind word. Uh, certainly, like the need can even be recognition. Uh, you know, I'm sure in in the case you provided, the brother isn't feeding the homeless for recognition, but still taking the time to recognize him through WhatsApp uh, can right. be just a wonderful, wonderful thing. Do you think, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, it just seems like currently, and maybe it is just a time and, and things will return to normal, but even before, before COVID, it seems like there was a need for connection and a need for that. That's something that we're, we're missing in society, uh, connection and fraternity and if Freemasonry seems like it's something that could fulfill that need. I just think Freemasonry seems to have a lot to offer. A lot of the, the ideas and lessons within it seem particularly important and poignant right now and, and over the last couple of years. Uh, even when you talked about earlier, right, not allowing politics or religion into into lodges because those things, especially we're seeing now, are tending to divide people far more than than ever before. I guess, how do you see? Do you have any thoughts on on you know Freemasonry dealing with with the outside world and these problems we see within it? You know, one one example I'll give is this has happened a few different places I've been to is we're obviously not allowed to discuss religion or politics within Lodge, but that doesn't mean that brethren outside of Lodge won't post things onto Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and then another brother sees it and then responds in a negative way. And then the other brother. So even though you're not allowed to discuss it within Lodge, Brethren will carry those things into lodge with them, and you can feel the tension in some instances. So, how does masonry, I guess, stand up to what seems like the increasing polarization of the world? Is it just a matter of, you know, focusing on charity and being, you know, just presenting our best selves? Um, what what I'm hearing from you is that there's a sense of um, of conflict and conflict resolution that obviously needs to to happen there. Um, I think Freemasonry in its teens is, is, uh, is very clear. Again, we don't make any pronunciation around uh, a politics, even not just in large, but I, I think grand lodges do not make pronunciations on such issues. Um, and there's a reason for that because then we're starting to sideline ourselves in terms of any particular direction and that's not the goal of Freemasonry. Uh, Freemasonry is there to bring a, a balance. There's a reason why we have a square and a compass and the story gets told in the first degree, as you very well know. Um, I think if brethren are um, engaging each other politically um, uh, online or, or in person, um, in fact, before I answer that, 
we had what they called the Anglo-Boer War in, uh, in South Africa, which was in the late 18, 1800s. And um, at some point, and, and there are stories told, and, and these are not legends, these are actual occurrences, where on the English side and on, on the Dutch side, they got to the battlefield and they didn't fight each other. They actually sat down and talked about ritual because they both turned out to be masons, right? Um, and so I think the same rule applies. So if you are truly a Mason and the reality of the matter is there are people who come into Freemasonry and they won't stay. And some others will tell you that Freemasonry is for life. I mean, I just heard this afternoon about a brother who's getting his 50 year jewel. Some people get Freemasonry, it works for them and they take those values and they apply it to their lives for life where others come purely out of interest and the rules are clear. They tell you right at the beginning, you know, if you are looking for X, Y, and Z, it's not here. You're in the wrong place. You should depart from here. And some people will go, okay, well, I still want to be in this organization. They come in and they don't last. They, they're there for months, maybe a year or two, and then, and then they leave. It's just, it doesn't appeal to them. So they will just naturally gradually gravitate away from Freemasonry. Um, so I don't think that the tenets of Freemasonry should change. I think it's, it's ancient. Um, we know it's, it's older than 300 years. And, and so it, it's worked very, very well. And I think that those lessons are still relevant today. And we know that if two brethren in any particular lodge have a disagreement with each other, they should step outside of the lodge and sort out that disagreement, whether they need assistance in terms of, of having that adjudicated, that can be done. But until they've dealt with their issue, they shouldn't come into the lodge because it's going to disturb the harmony of the lodge. And so I think that's gonna remain. And I think it's great that it's gonna remain that way. I don't think politics or religion has a place in lodge. Um, yes, we have our differences and we can certainly talk about it, but as Freemasons or true Freemasons, we have the ability to talk about these issues um, with, uh, with a, a calm reflection. Uh, you know, we tend to be, I think, a little bit more intelligent um, when we do talk about politics and religion, and we're not unreasonable in terms of the conversations that we have. Whereas without that foundation of Freemasonry, you're going to lean extremely either to the left or the right, and there's just no middle ground, whereas Freemasonry promotes that middle ground. Yeah, I, that's, that's, uh, I agree with that completely. I think that's kind of my, my, my point, which is, or, or my, um, I think what, what the right word is, it's, it's, it seems that in, in a world of increasing polarization and, and increasing, um, you know, it seems very important that we as Masons make sure that that doesn't creep into our lodge rooms uh as much as as possible like you said right whatever whatever might get said on you know uh, social media or, or outside of lodge that that increasing polarization doesn't affect with what happens within a, a masonic lodge or between brothers because i exactly. think freemasonry has so much to offer in terms of of you know contemplation and understanding and being charitable towards others with different opinions and different ideas. Uh, you know, those virtues, which 
sometimes can seem in short supply outside of a Masonic Lodge, making sure they remain in abundance within a Masonic Lodge. And, you know, one way I think we do that, and this is why I applaud you for, for your work, is, you know, having an, an online presence where those, those qualities are in abundance as well. So whether it be the International Masonic Town Hall or some other Masonic online events I've been able to attend, it's, you know, since we're not getting rid of the internet anytime soon or, or social media or anything like that, it's making sure that we as Masons have a presence where we can promote charity and tolerance and understanding and, you know, contemplation and, and patience. Because if, I think if Masonry isn't in that area, you know, we can only bring good things to, to the virtual or, or online world. Because um, I think sometimes people view them as, as separate. It's like there's a virtual world over here and the, the quote unquote real world. But I think so often the two bleed into each other. So I think it's important that such as, you know, the International Masonic Town Hall, things like that exist because that can only, you know, the nicer people are there to each other, the nicer they will be to each other in the quote unquote real world. And more of those Masonic values will, will be practiced on, in you know, our day-to-day -day lives. I, I think we can agree on that. Definitely agree with you. Although speaking of the virtual world, if you would do me a favor, we mentioned him earlier, mentioned to uh, most virtual brother Bill Sardone, he hasn't responded to my friend request yet. I sent him a Facebook friend request, <laughs> no, no response. I want to have him on this uh, podcast. I, I can't help you with that. <laughs> I, think, um, I think a lot of, uh, a, a lot of brethren are not very active on, on platforms like Facebook they have a presence, but you'll probably notice that they don't, um, they don't post very much or, or, uh, or comment very much where things are concerned. And I think that uh, most wish for Brother Sladon or, or any of the other uh, Grand Masters or past Grand Masters around the world, uh, you know, certainly they, they have a small group of friends that they, um, that they work with. And uh, I, yeah, you know, if, if he's going to accept, he's going to accept at some point. If he's not, as a brother, one to another, don't hold it against him. It's as simple as I, that. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I won't, but I do, uh, I do enjoy his contributions to the International Sonic Town Halls. So, um, you know, just throw it in the next one. You Just throw it in there, maybe. Maybe send a message in chat. <laughs> You, you, you drag me into this. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, with that, I just thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to speak with, with myself and then everybody who, who will tune into this. I think, like I said, I think you should be applauded for the work you've done in creating these international side town halls because I can speak for myself and say that they have, you know, uh, helped me in my Masonic journey. I was concerned when March came and, and Lodge activity was suspended. I always say, I want to make it clear, Lodge meetings are suspended. Lodge activity still exists. I think that that's something I want to remind brethren of. You know, we still have, our summonses are being sent out. We still have our benevolence committee if any brethren need, uh, need assistance with either monetary or anything else. We still have correspondence going back and forth and, and all the paperwork. So people often say, you know, lodge activity is suspended, but 
just the in-person meetings. There's still a lot of law activity happening behind the scenes. I'm sure you're in the same boat as virtual master. You know, there's still lots of activity going on to maintain the structure of a lodge. But I was concerned about, you know, becoming stagnant a bit in, in Freemasonry and your town halls are just one way I've managed to keep growing within the craft. So thank you so much for, for creating it because it's been terrific for me and I know many other brethren. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, I, I'd like to, from one, one presiding master to another, uh, it's one thing being a worshipful master, it's another thing to preside, as you very well know. So from I one do. presiding... I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm actually just out. I'm, uh, I'm secretary now. Uh, I'm oh, wonderful. Okay, okay. But I, I think for all presiding masters, um, you know, I, th I think one has to be reminded of our obligation. Uh, and our obligation is to take care of the uh, of the glory uh, and the well-being of the lodge, you know. So, and and I'd like to think that since you put your hand on a on a on a, a volume of a sacred law, and and uh, you know, once you take that obligation very seriously, and there's nothing stopping presiding masters or worshipful brethren from around the world with uh, with having conversations and and talking about their challenges and. And seeing whether one has had a similar challenge and how that was overcome, um, and certainly being able to be a resource um, for each other in terms of one content um, and two lessons in in how to uh, how to do things differently, particularly when you have challenges like COVID. So uh, you know, if you need any any kind of um, uh, direction or advice uh, from my side, I'm, I'm open. Any other uh, presiding master or worshipful master, because at the end of the day, you know, if, if the presiding master is not available, who's left to run the lodge? The worshipful master has got to step up, right? Uh, if you're there on the night, guess what? The lodge is yours, <laughs> uh, whether you're in the chair or not. Um, and so I, I think that worldwide we have that resource and we should not be afraid to use those relationships and, and the brotherhood in terms of content and ideas. I mean, if you needed a speaker, um, I could speak. There are other people that I know who could be speakers that could uh, obviously add some really, really interesting content. And that's really, really what it's about. Um, during this time of COVID, we, we don't uh, necessarily get the ritual that we, we enjoy so much. But we do get to learn about each other and, and we do get to pick up on things that we didn't even though existed before. I, I can tell you that out of my own travels, I've seen things that I went, oh, wait a minute, that makes so much sense. I didn't realize it, but I've not seen it. Um, in plain sight, it's, it's, it's like the biggest secret. Nobody knows it's, it's symbolism, but it, it's there. And I know exactly what that is. And I had no clue. Um, my wife, for example, uh, comes from a Masonic family and we went to, uh, to plant a flag because uh, one of her great-grandfathers was in the military. And I'm looking at the structure in front of me and I'm, I'm completely in awe because I, I, I read about it in a ritual, but I didn't see it in person until that moment and I knew exactly what it was. And the, the light bulb just went off in my head. And likewise, there are things around the world that are in plain sight that unless you're a Freemason, it has absolutely no meaning to you. And I would get into a place um, where generally it wouldn't have any meaning for somebody. And I'd go, 
wait a minute, why is that even here? Do they know what that is? And I would go and I'd research and I'd find out that it was actually, uh, historically, it was before a particular regime change or political change happened that that structure was actually there and it's still physically there. And I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that. So there's so much around the world um, uh, in terms of uh, Masonic symbolism that people just don't see because it makes no sense to them. It's just there. It's something they walk past every day and they don't even realize what it is. So in terms of content, in terms of history, in terms of locations, we're here for each other, whether it is uh, our most worship of Timonian, whether it's any other brethren in South Africa that's done research, uh, whether it's anybody in the United States or some other country in the world, we all form but one lodge, you know, from, from the heavens to the earth, from the surface of the earth to its center, from the east to the west, from the north to the south, we all form but one lodge. So if we can help each other, Let's reach out and let's do that. I think that is the perfect place to end it because I, I agree with you 100%. Thank you so much again for taking the time and uh, I'll knock on wood for you and I'll keep my thoughts because like you said, right, you're, you're far from home. I hope you get back, back home soon enough. Uh, knock on wood. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It was good talking to you. Have a good night.